following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. Welcome on in to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. We uh, invite you all in. We welcome you too if you're online this morning with us. Sorry for the technical difficulties we experienced earlier. We obviously have a little more homework that we need to do on that. It's uh, a little more challenging than we thought, so we're going to uh, work on that in the upcoming, upcoming days. Just giving people time to come in and find their seats here. Welcome again. We enjoyed uh, just now uh, seeing Mike and Marie Brunk and hearing a brief update from them. Uh, and it was just good to, to be able to catch up with them again. It's been quite a little while. And Hopefully we'll be able to see them in the fall. Our next uh, missionary visit will be on March 21st, I believe, during the Sunday school hour. This with our missionaries, Jeremy and Damaris Dodelaire in France. And so we'll be able to enjoy the similar kind of thing, although hopefully by then we get all the technical kinks worked out and uh, we'll be able to enjoy it even more. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we uh, come back for worship and fellowship, Truth Trackers Club meets. Uh, We are having uh, our message series continue in the book of Matthew this evening, now in Matthew chapter 4. So I hope that you'll be able to come along. If you're not, then you can uh, listen online and participate with us that way and learn a little bit more of the Word of God. You can see their Wednesday and Saturday prayer meetings. Uh, We had a great turnout yesterday for the men's meeting. Uh, both on the telephone and in person, and we enjoyed a lot of prayer and uh, Bible study, learning the the Word together. Uh, An announcement that is important for the church family, and that is that the Lord's Table service is next Sunday night, that is uh, at 6 o'clock, first Sunday of the month, and uh, we're trying this year to do every other service in the Sunday school hour, every other month, and then every, uh, the other ones, the normal time in the evening, on, on the first Sunday evening of the month. So that's going to be next Lord's Day in the evening, so be prepared for that uh, opportunity to carry out the Lord's ordinance for the church. Let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah 27, and as we do, let's just settle our, our hearts and minds this morning. For some of us, at least, it's been a little bit uh, harried, hurried, uh, different things going on that would be good for us to set aside and focus our attention on the word of the Lord, Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? 
in measure by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered, and this is all the fruit of taking away his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust. Wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its bows are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire. For it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. What a day that will be. Amen. All right, good morning again. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14, if you would, this morning. I just have a few loose ends there I'd like to address before we move on to chapter 15. And I'm very pleased that we'll be able to move into chapter 15. I kind of felt like I'm um, an old farmer's analogy, kind of beating a dead horse uh, here in chapter 14. Uh, We've had enough of of tongues and the misuse of spiritual gifts and all of that. I just keep whacking away at it, and I think you folks are getting the point. So let's uh, look forward to moving on. But... Before we do, the last couple of verses in chapter 14 are a little more broad in their scope. And in uh, verse 36, the Apostle Paul is drawing this part of his letter to a close, and he says, Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? This is, this is a tough question. He is really sticking it to them. Uh, basically saying that Corinth was not the center of the universe. They were not the origin of the Word of God, nor were they the only recipients. They were not a special case. They could not just go do whatever they wanted to do. The Apostle Paul uh, talks in verse 33 about God not being the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Very sad to hear Pastor Brunk talk about you know seventy percent of the churches in in uh, his country being given over to this strange charismatic and prosperity gospel doctrine, and uh, that's not what all the churches should be doing. All the churches should be following the standard teaching from God's Word. Not all of this crazy stuff that he is telling us that they're into nationally over there in the church. So all the churches, they, they, but they were kind of thinking, well, we're special. We've got these gifts. We can kind of order our, our, or disorder our services the way we want to. Uh, but Paul is calling them short on that and saying, no, that's not the case, friends. Uh, you're not the be-all and end-all. Individuals in the church, listen to verse 37, should be acknowledging that what Paul was writing to them were the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 37. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, in other words, 
you've got these gifts, you think you're, you're something hot, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. I alluded to this last week earlier in the message than I had intended to based on the order of my print notes, but the, the reality is that this, what Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians 14, might as well be in red letters in your Bible. It is true. All Scripture is given by inspiration, or more properly, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's exhaled from God. It's spoken by God, spoken to us by the, the Lord through the prophets, through the Spirit. And uh, this, is, this is the Word of God, not the Word of Paul, not the Word of man. And so he's saying we need to be able to acknowledge that the things that, that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. In fact, anyone who thinks they're a spiritual person should willingly receive that and acknowledge that Paul was saying the commandments of Christ. Or, said another way, what, what Paul wrote is exactly what God wrote. What Paul wrote is what God meant him to write, <clears throat> and anyone who at that time or in the present today, in 2021, ignores Paul or puts him down as doing a great disservice to God and to the Word of God. So listen, people who say Paul is something special, he's off to the side, either we downplay him or we increase his stature. You know, in other words, there's, there are groups of people who say, look, Paul is just kind of off the beaten path. He, he has a different kind of form of doctrine. Put him down. Or others who elevate him and say, well, Peter and those guys had the gospel to the, to the Jews and the baptism and and the Lord's table, that's not really for us today. These are the hyper or ultra dispensationalists, perhaps better said. They would elevate Paul and say, look, that's all we need to be listening to is the Apostle Paul. He is the exponent of of church truth. Either of those positions is incorrect because this is the word of God, just like the rest of it is God's word, just as authoritative as everything else. Now, as far as the the context from last week, especially where we ended with the role of women in the church in verses 34 and 35, uh, I had thought to put in my notes last time and didn't get to this, but since this is God's word, not man's word, when somebody who who is swallowed up into the feminist movement today becomes a Christian that person has an uphill battle to extricate from their mind the doctrines that they have been taught, either by their own sinful flesh or by their college professors or now high school or middle school professors, teachers. He has to remove all of that, or she, and, and fill it with the Word of God. You know, do, do realize that colleges are teaching bad doctrine bad doctrine, including the feminist doctrine. And of course, now we're way beyond that. I mean, now the whole the rage is the social justice uh, movement and teaching all of that and oppressor and oppressed and communism and Marxism and, and all of those sorts of things. But this was one of those things taught for many decades now, and it's become so ingrained in our culture and society that we don't even recognize it largely. It's just, oh, well, that's just how it is. Besides being taught this feminist doctrine, which is out of accord with verses 34 and 35, that agrees to the sinner's, 
to the sinner's inflated view of themselves. And a man, well, so you might think, well, that, that's so I'm speaking to women. I'm not just speaking to women. You know there are, that men can be feminists too, right? They can hold that same idea, that same idea, that same doctrine that, no, women should be able to be pastors. Or, or, in fact, really what it is is, as I said some months ago, a movement from a patriarchal society not to an equal society. The movement is all the way to the other side, a matriarchal society. The men just need to sit down and shut up, and the women need to take over because they're the ones that have sense and, and all of that. That's the idea of the feminist movement, the end of it, the goal of it. And so men and women both uh, partake of that doctrine. God has ordained things differently than the world wants to have them, hasn't he? And uh, people who are saved out of the world realize that fact over the course of time. And so when we say that this is God's word, we're ultimately going back to the issue of what is your authority? Who is, who is the authority in the feminist movement anyway? Where does that doctrine come from? Who, who underwrites that or gives it um, the place of preeminence? It's just made up as far as human, hu- humanity is concerned. Of course, the evil forces of the, of the evil one are behind all these movements, these big movements. But uh, wh- what authority makes feminism right anyway? What authority makes anything right? It's not God, and it's man ultimately. Paul says at the end there, verse 38, if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. So Paul's ready to move on. If somebody's going to persist in this false teaching, let them go. We're going to move on here. We're not going to get stuck with that. So he says in 39, then therefore, brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. And so, again, he's wrapping up what he had started, chapter 14, 1, and back all the way to chapter 12. Why do you desire earnestly to prophesy as a church? Because that's what gives the most edification. That's what we want. We want the, the, the gifts to be used that give the highest building up or strengthening value in the church. And then he says, do not, for their context, do not forbid to speak with tongues. You can't forbid it in that day. You can today because there is no such thing today as that gift given. But in that day, you could not forbid. However, you could close it down if there was no what? Interpreter. If there wasn't, then stop, done, okay? No question about it. It was all over. And finally, Paul closes with this principle. Let all things be done in the church decently and in order. And I think that applies to more than the church. I mean, if your life is not decent and not in order, in or outside of the church, you need to get it right. God wants us to live that way. Not wild, not crazy, not unsober, not bouncing back and forth like a pinball and all of that. He says decent, decently. That is, what is appropriate for public consumption. Uh, it's it's uh, something becoming to what the church is as a thing. What is the church? It's the dwelling place of God by his spirit. So do you do things where God dwells that are unbecoming, unbefitting, improper, or things that are out of order. He says everything would be done decently and in order. It means following the proper procedure and protocol in a state of well-regulated conduct. 
Colossians 2, Paul says, I'm glad to see your good order in the church. Everything is orderly there. It's operating like it should. If something does not meet these two standards of decent and in order, then it's not to be done in the church. Now, I just, in my notes last week, gave some ideas about what might not fit in the church. For example, I said fundraisers, hawking products in the church, doing silly games in the church, or having uh, randomly ordered church services that have no kind of rhyme or reason to them. The place of the church is a place of holiness. It's not a place of crude levity. It's a place of worship, not a social club. The church is a place of learning, not of entertainment. The church is the body of Christ. It's worthy of our very best, of uh, orderliness, of decency, of using our special abilities given by God. It's the place for self-control, for worship, for honor, for submission, for obedience to the word of God. That is what the church is to be about. All things must be done decently and in order. I'm sure more could be said, but we're going to leave that horse for another time, okay? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. First Corinthians chapter 15 is the lengthiest chapter in the book of Corinthians. It runs to 58 verses in total length. Uh, there are a couple other chapters that rival it uh, in length. The 14 is 40 verses, and uh, 12 also is quite lengthy, 31. But chapter 15 is a big chunk to bite off. So we're going to chew on it in several smaller pieces over the next weeks. And we're going to uh, deal here with the doctrine of the resurrection. So we're in part one today. Uh, this works out very well because we're going to cover most of this, if not all of it, by Resurrection Sunday, which is April 4th this year, Easter holiday. And so we're looking forward to getting this all under our belt in preparation for that great, great uh, remembrance of our Lord's resurrection. I give you the outline of six points there of chapter 15, and we're going to be addressing just the first one of those today, or at least part of that first one. So let's read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. This is of primary importance, folks, primary importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Peter, That's what Cephas means, if your translation has that. Then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, 
of whom the greater part remain, that is, remain alive to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. This is a for me, this is a kind of a new idea that I was able to flesh out in my thinking a little bit this week, this idea of the grace of God not being in vain toward us. Notice how Paul treated it or used it. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, in Christian theology... The word resurrection is commonly used to refer to Jesus' death and subsequent, here's the point, coming back to life on the third day. This is an essential truth of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, resurrection refers to a dead body being given life again. Now, you might think, well, that's obvious, (laughs) But that's not so obvious to some people. The word body is important in that definition because some people suggest that resurrection is simply a spiritual, by which they mean non-material event. So they would say Christ is raised in our hearts on Easter Sunday because we adopt his service mentality. We adopt his goodness. We embrace that for ourselves. He's resurrected in our hearts. That's the liberal version of Christian, can I use that very loosely in air quotes, uh, doctrine of the resurrection. Or uh, some people say that we will be resurrected only spiritually, by which they mean immaterially. That word spiritual, we've gone over that before, and I'm sure I'll touch it again, but I don't like using it that way because spiritual does not mean immaterial. You ought to be, in all of your materiality, as, 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 you know, as hard as your head is materially, you ought to be a spiritual person. I say in jest, Okay. We are physical beings. We have material bodies, but we're supposed to be spiritual. That doesn't mean we're ghosts, okay? So the word spiritual means having to do with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean ethereal. It doesn't mean like fog or something like that, okay? So, but you understand when somebody says, I believe in a spiritual resurrection, that's a heresy. What they're saying is, I believe there's not a bodily resurrection. So, When I say resurrection, it refers to a dead body being given life again. We will be resurrected in a real physical body. All Christian people will be resurrected in bodies like Christ's body and then will live forever. By the way, how do we know know that uh, our body will be a physical body? Well, Christ was raised with a physical body. Remember? What, what happened to when, when Christ came out of the tomb and, and, the, and the women saw him, they, 
they did what? They wanted to hold him by the feet. Well, how do you hold a ghost by the feet? You can't. He had feet. Later on, he said, do you have any food? And they gave him some food, a honeycomb and this, and he ate. Okay? This is a real physical body that he had. Okay? It was not a ghost where, you know, he chewed the food and you could see it go down his esophagus like in the stomach you do in the x-rays. You know, have you ever seen those before? Those are kind of cool, by the way, but that's not what Jesus was. Jesus was in a body that was like his earthly regular body, but glorified, improved, okay? And so the scripture says we will have a body like his glorious body. Now, all Christian people will be resurrected and live forever, And I have news for you. All non-Christian people will be resurrected and live forever. That's not a good thought, lest you think. I'm not talking about universal salvation. I'm talking about some living forever in bliss, Christians, and others living forever in judgment. Now, a few times God has raised people from the dead and replaced them into their original non-glorified physical body. Lazarus is an example of that. And we understand that poor Lazarus had to go through the process of dying twice. He he died from this illness that he had in, in John chapter 11. Four days later, Jesus comes, raises him out of the grave, Lazarus was called forth, raised up. His body was reanimated. Re, I mean, this is a not only the miracle of, of resurrection, of calling back the spirit into the body, but remanufacturing the body. I mean, if you know what happens when a body dies, it starts to decompose within minutes. I mean, the cells break down and they start eating themselves, basically, in a way of saying it. I mean, it's crazy what, what happens. And so after four days, this process is well along the way. God, through Christ, raised up Lazarus from the dead. But this is what we call, what I call a lesser resurrection. This is a resurrection to a natural, unglorified body. What we're talking about in chapter 15 is the resurrection to a different kind of physical material body, which is also a spiritual body, uh, but not spiritual in the sense of ghostly, spiritual in the sense of being Holy Spirit-filled, and, and, and working. So that body that we're talking about with this resurrection is the body which is outfitted for an eternal existence. Let me mention also under the heading of resurrection here, the Christian teaching centers around the hope of the resurrection. A major part of our hope is to be raised from the dead in a material body, not, not a spiritual as we've said. Um, and this hope signifies something that is beyond a fond wish. You know, like, boy, I wish I could just be in a body that had no problems at all, that could live forever. No, it's, it's, far, it's beyond that. It's not I wish. It's that I am certain that God will outfit each of his children with such a body that will be able to live forever with no sciatica, no nerve problems, brother. No aches and pains, no sinus issues, no allergies. What will that be like? Yeah. 
we have that hope. And beyond that, it's, it's not just a selfish hope like, oh, I hope I get all my problems fixed. It's a cosmic hope. It's a hope for a time in which God is vindicated, Christ is honored, they are worshipped, God's people are at peace, uh, which, in which justice is done in the whole society, in which there is a, a literal golden age called the kingdom of Christ on this earth. We look forward to all of that. That's part of our hope. That's not a wish merely. That is a hope which is a certain expectation of something that is to come in the future. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.9 says it this way, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most pitiable. It's a sad state of affairs if our hope only extends to our last breath. Our hope must extend beyond that into the life to come. The removal of sin will be part of our hope, the removal of its effects. Where does COVID come from, by the way? Ultimately, the fall into sin plunged the race into death and disease that leads to death for all of its history. That's the ultimate cause of this. We're, we're, we're going to get a vaccine for that, but you know what? That's not a guarantee, first of all, and there's no vaccine against death. You know, there is none that will do that. So, but in the, in the regeneration, as we say it, in the, in the time to come, uh, the complete removal of the effects of sin will be visible. We'll live with God. We'll live with Christ. He will be our God. We will be his people. We'll be in the kingdom in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul indicated that his future expectation of the resurrection was the driving force behind his whole ministry. In fact, let me just go back there, because I think with Paul, we ought to be able to say something like this. Acts 23.6, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, <clears throat> concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Or Acts 24, 15. Paul says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Both, listen to this. Both of the just and the unjust. We often leave the unjust out. But you've got to remember, uh, the Lord taught this even in his own ministry. In John chapter 5, he says there's a day coming, an hour, in fact, coming, in which the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will come forth from the graves, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt, to punishment. And so Jesus himself said it, all will be raised, both believers and unbelievers. And Paul has that hope of the resurrection of the dead. Acts chapter 28 and verse number 20. For this reason, Paul says, I have called you for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Here's why. He, doesn't, he, he says it this way, kind of synonymous with, since I'm a Christian, I'm bound with this chain. What he says, for the hope of Israel. The fact that I'm preaching the resurrection of Jesus, of Jesus and our resurrection in him is why I'm in this chain. In Acts chapter 17, you remember Paul was ridiculed by the philosophers in Athens and Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Why? Because they said he preaches, 
he's babbling on about Jesus and the resurrection. That was the center focus of his message, Jesus and the resurrection. So, friends, when we preach the gospel here, we're not just preaching Jesus. We are, but we're preaching Jesus and the resurrection, him crucified and risen again, and then ourselves as well following in his train, resurrected like he was. Now, I'm going to do some teaching here, and I hope that you'll find it somewhat helpful to kind of organize your thinking around this matter of the, the, our idea of the afterlife. Where do we get our idea for the afterlife, for what happens after we die? You know, do we get it from the popular books that say, you know, I was in heaven for 45 minutes and came back to tell you everything that I saw? No. We get our ideas of what is after life by what God has revealed in the Bible. Christianity is a revealed religion. It's not made up in the minds of men. <clears throat> it's revealed by God to, men, to mankind who wrote down in the Bible for us. <clears throat> but there are lots of other views of the afterlife. And so in the second section of my notes, I've given you some wrong views of the afterlife. And I want to lay these out because what we're teaching in 1 Corinthians 15 will be in utter contrast to these views. The first wrong view about the afterlife, as I'll just simply call it, is reincarnation. And you have to understand that the theology that you hold as a Christian, is very different than that which millions and perhaps billions of people on earth hold to. And among them, some believe in the doctrine of reincarnation. Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, Gnosticism, and Manichaeism all believe in some form of reincarnation or transmigration, as they call it. The hope of Hinduism is also reincarnation in which that part of a person, whatever that part is that continues after death, is reborn into another person or animal or maybe plant. And although people claim to have such you know, memories of their prior lives, where do those come from? Imaginations. People imagine very strange things, very unreal things, or perhaps demonic influence has caused this in them, and they have a very imaginative mind. But the Bible undercuts the whole idea of reincarnation with one verse. Hebrews 9 and verse number 27 says, It is appointed for man once to die, not multiple times until you reach nirvana or whatever, version is, or, or never perhaps, you're always dying and re, being reincarnated and dying and being reincarnated. No, one time, and after that, you face what? Judgment. Death, once to die, and then the judgment. So reincarnation is one of the views or ways that people explain, what happens to me after I die? This is the God-ordained truth explanation in 1 Corinthians 15, that Resurrection is going to occur, and judgment will occur, and, and all those things that happen after that. Second wrong view of the afterlife, annihilation. This is a very common view. 
or um, maybe I could call it, I'll make this term up, I didn't see this in my study, but conditional annihilation um, or conditional immortality on the other side of the ledger. So the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in annihilation. What is that? Annihilation is a means that the unsaved dead simply cease to exist. Eternal punishment means that these people are vaporized, completely destroyed forever. They're in the grave. They're dead and gone. They've returned to nothing. They go back to being like they were before they were conceived, meaning they do not exist at all. Now, the attra- what's the attraction of this view? The attraction of this view is you don't have to deal with hell. You just say, it's, 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 there's, actually, there's no real need for hell because people are annihilated and, and they just go away. Because hell is a very unpleasant idea. Why, why would I want to think about people being tormented or punished for their iniquities? And so people want to just leave it off their, their, their theology. But Jesus taught, a rich man was in Hades, taught that Lazarus was, the, the poor man, a different Lazarus, was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. It's clear in the Bible that there is eternal punishment for sin. I hope you agree with me about that. Uh, just kind of factoring it all into, well, it's eternal because you know they, they forever are non-existent um, is kind of a strange idea to us who have uh, embraced uh, true Christian theology. Look at Revelation 20, verse 10, if you have your Bible handy there. It says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That doesn't sound like they cease to exist. Now in verse 15 it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It doesn't say they're destroyed, vaporized, disappeared, or whatever. It says that they're cast into that lake of fire. And by prior example, we have this idea of punishment that is... uh, poured out upon them. I I find it unpleasant as well, but the unpleasantness drives me to share the message of the gospel with people who need to be rescued from that place, not simply rescued from the idea of having to think about it. You know, just because you close something out of your mind and put your blinders on doesn't make it not so. You You can say there is no hell, but the day you find out there is one, you're going to rue that day. Annihilationism. It's closely related to the doctrine of conditional immortality, where, con- where immortality is conditioned, they say, upon belief in Jesus. Those who fail the condition are annihilated. Okay, so this is basically annihilationism, but it's putting, it, it's putting the opposite spin on it. It's saying, okay, looking at the other side of the coin, it's conditional immortality. For those that believe, there's immortality. For those that don't believe, there's annihilation. And I see some of you looking at the notes there. You see those names? You see those names of people who believe in conditional immortality. Did I say conditional immorality? Look at that. That might be an accurate slip there. (laughs) Conditional immortality. Put that T in there. Okay. Uh, You have theologians like John Stott, Richard Baucom, Clark Pinnock, Greg Boyd, Harold Camping. 
Don't expect much better from him. Ellen White, Joel Green, some of these names I was shocked to see believe in conditional immortality. These are very broad evangelicals who, who, just on this basis, I'll tell you my approach to their theology and their theology books. Because they are so errant on such a basic doctrine, you must look at their theology with, at the best, a high level of suspicion. That's the best. Okay, So uh, I'm very unhappy with that kind of theology that goes that route to, to address an issue that doesn't really need to be addressed. What needs to be addressed is the gospel needs to go out. Instead of writing a theology book that says, don't worry about hell, you'll be annihilated, how about evangelize some people and tell them that sin has eternal consequences? Third view that's wrong is a kind of an extension of the second, and that's the atheist view. What does the atheist say? Not conditional immortality, just plain old annihilation for everybody. You live, you die, you go to the grave. There's nothing for anyone in an afterlife. A sensible philosophy and practice for them is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But besides being biblically wrong, clearly, there's something philosophically wrong and and unsatisfying about there being no consequence to how you live this life. It makes no sense. God has placed eternity in our hearts, and it does no good. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11, by the way. He's placed in us a sense of the knowledge there's something beyond us. There's something beyond the end of our life, beyond the beginning of our life. He has placed eternity in our hearts. It's, it does not do to simply say, look, no eternity. It's just here and now. There's nothing else to ignore that placement in the image of God and man of the, of the idea of eternity is very dissatisfying. Uh, I go to the next view here, number four, which talks about the spiritual resurrection. And to kind of highlight this, I'll just say that JW's, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, believe that there is a twofold uh, division between believers in the eternal state. There are those who are the um, upper class, and the few, they're few privileged, and they will be in heaven, ruling over the earth and all that. And then the rest of the uh, poor believers, uh, the second-class citizen Christians, will be on the new earth, in paradise, so to speak, and uh, they will be living there. But in either case, some kind of resurrection would be necessary to get those people to their places of blessing on their system now, in their viewpoint. But... It's unclear if it's a bodily resurrection or not. In fact, I think it's, it's actually I'm, it's leaning more towards not a bodily resurrection because these folks do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Did you know that? They only believe in his spiritual resurrection through a process that some of them call annihilation and recreation. Thus, this throws doubt on their view of bodily resurrection for believers because if Jesus himself is not raised bodily, then why would we be raised bodily? Okay, So when you engage with somebody who holds to this theology, do not be tricked by their 
oft-repeated mantra that we're just evangelicals and we're Christians and we're... They are not, okay? They are not. If they don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, they have failed a basic test of orthodoxy. That is not Christianity when somebody denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? How can I say that? It's so clear in Scripture. It's plain and obvious. You cannot take God's word and say, nope, it's not that, it's something else, and say, yeah, and I'm a Christian. Doesn't go, does not fly, my friends. Um, Scripture states that Christ is the first fruits of those who have died. Okay? He came out of the grave, and so shall we. We will have a body like his, Philippians 3.21 says. He is able to fashion our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Okay? Uh, we know he had a body. We already said they tried to help hold him by the feet. He, had, uh, he ate food. He, was, uh, he walked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and so on and so forth. Okay? So the JW system of theology is false and must be rejected entirely. It's certainly imaginative, but it's imaginary. It does not have any, rea- any, any basis in reality. Fifth wrong view of the afterlife is soul sleep. Soul sleep. While the Christian awaits resurrection, we are not experiencing soul sleep. Many people have gotten into believing this. You know, they say it, it, when you die, it feels like you're immediately with the Lord after death, but many years or even millennia might have passed between the time that you died and the time that you woke up. It's like when you go to sleep at night, and all of a sudden it's several hours later, and you didn't notice the passage of time, they say. Unnotice that passage of time before you awaken. Now, I call this the time warp view of personal eschatology, that you experience this kind of time warp, and, and you know, people that are kind of infatuated with science and, you know, Star Trekky kinds of things and space travel and wormholes and all this. They kind of have this, you know, oh, that's kind of a cool idea, you know, that, that uh, we can kind of, we'll kind of time travel through those millennia and immediately we'll be with the Lord. That's not how it works, folks. The Bible is clear that we are with the Lord the moment we pass. And so somebody who dies from COVID today is with the Lord today. And we are still here today, okay? this very day. Soul sleep is the idea that when you die, you're unconscious of that passage of time. Also, and maybe I should have called this out as a separate section, is the doctrine of purgatory. Some have taken this idea of purgatory, and there are billions of people who believe this doctrine, aren't there? Or many millions, at least. Uh, the Christian does not experience purgatory. Rather, we're conscious and in heaven when we die, Purgatory is, what is it? It's a place where your spirit supposedly goes to be punished for your sins. Now, do they say it exactly that way? I'm not sure, but that's basically it. You have to be purged. You have to be purgated. Your sins have to be, as, as I might say, burned off. The dross has to be burned off until you have paid enough of a price or 
the living make enough donations to the church, right? Or the faithful make enough prayers for your soul at your funeral or after that, that to spring you out of purgatory. Again, very imaginative, but imaginary. There is no such thing. The Bible is crystal clear that purgatory is, does not exist, cannot exist, in fact, because Romans 8.1 says, for those that are in Christ, there is what? No condemnation. All the condemnation has been poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ paid for all of the sins of the believer, not just the bad ones or not just some of them. Okay? Nothing can you do to wash away your sins. Only the blood of Christ can do that. You can't bring anything in your hands to Him. You come to Him without righteousness, naked as the song says, no goodness to bring to Him. Your tears, forever though they may flow, will not pay for your sins. They will not for sin atone. Christ paid for all the sins of the believer. That's why we urge you to believe in Him. Repent and believe the gospel because He will wash away your sins. If you believe in the doctrine of purgatory, hang with me here, little sequence of thought. If you believe in purgatory, that shows that you believe in a works-based salvation, doesn't it? The, the tie between those two doctrines, purgatory and work salvation, is tight. Logically unassailable, really. Because you're saying there are some things that I did or could do to avoid purgatory or to get out in less time or put me there. And the work of Christ was insufficient to wash away my sins. Remember, Christian salvation is all by grace, not at all by works. So if, I hope that nobody experiences what I'm about to say, but if you're an unbeliever and you believe in purgatory and you die and you end up in a place that's like purgatory, just let these words echo in your ears. It's not purgatory. You found yourself in a place called Hades, and there's no getting out of that place. Don't mess around, my friends. Do not mess around with the the issues of life and say, well, I'll find out when the time comes. No, God's already told you. You don't have to. You can find out now what the afterlife is all about. And so we come then, after that lengthy introduction, finally, to the gospel that saves. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, that he came to save sinners such as ourselves. He offers us a free salvation, costly to him as it was, but free to us by turning from our sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, although I don't have time to go beyond where we are in our notes in page four much today, I appeal to you to know and to embrace the gospel that saves. What we're reading and and studying here, my friends, is not the dead horse of chapter 14. I think, in fact, when when the translators here put moreover, they say moreover, brothers, I think that's a little weak. This is not another issue that's just like the previous issue. This is central to the life of, 
of the believer and to the life of the church. What, he should, what they should translate this as, something like this. Now, brothers, the vocative, calling out, voicing the name of the brothers in the church. Now, listen, let me remind you of what I told you in the gospel, which I preached to you and you also received. And he said in verse 3, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. If you don't get anything else, get this, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That gospel which he preached. It's the same gospel that he delivered to them originally. There's no different one. There's no new one. There's no adjusted one. There's no innovative one. There's just the one. And if somebody comes and brings to you another one, Paul says in Galatians 1, 6-9, let him be accursed. There's only one gospel, the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And initially, the people in Corinth had believed that gospel. Notice, he says in verse 1, which you also received. So Paul came to them. He said, look, abandon your idols. They're not going to do you any good. They're going to lead you down the road to hell. I'm going to tell you what you really need to do with your sin. You can be saved, rescued from the eternal consequences, the dreadful consequences of sin, both in your life and especially after you die. You can be brought near to God instead of being separated from Him. Search your conscience, my friend. You know that you are a sinner and that you have displeased God. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Self, I have sinned. I still sin far too much for my liking. But you know what? Christ came to save sinners. And when, he, when Paul came to them and preached that, they believed it. At least it seemed that they did, and many of them certainly did, truly did, but some were wondering. Now, Paul says in verse 2, by which you're saved. If you believe, you will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will, shall be saved. None will be left, none will be turned aside, none will be turned back, none will be left, none will be lost. All who confess him truly as Lord and Savior. But then he says this, verse 2, If you hold fast to that which I preach to you, that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. I'll close on at one and the same time, we have to hold these two truths together. Number one, salvation for the Christian is permanent. Number two, there is an if attached in Paul's theology, which is Christian theology. If, he says, you hold fast. Now, what happens if you don't hold fast? If you don't hold fast... That means that you never came into possession of the permanent Christian salvation that is available to all through Christ. Okay, So maybe you think, well, is, is salvation permanent or is it not permanent? Well, let me assure you that I can hold those two ideas, salvation is permanent and there's an if, all at one and the same time because God is over it all. He gives an eternal salvation, and he causes his people to continue to believe, but people who exercise or have a false faith, 
who don't hold fast. And, and really what he's doing here is he's saying, what do you do with people who once said they believed and now say they don't believe? What do you do with those folks? Well, what Paul says is you're not holding fast the sound words, so therefore you must not have had that permanent salvation. You just had, uh, an, you had a, an appearance of being a Christian person. You never had salvation at all because there's only one true kind of salvation to have, and that's the real one. Okay, So the point of this is to catch those, to, to grapple with those who say, once said they believed in Christ, but now do not. Now, those two thoughts, permanent salvation and the if, cause people to have a lot of mental angst. And to, to kind of answer that, I would say this. If you still do, really do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about failing the if test. You don't because you still hold fast. But if you, if you say, I reject the gospel then you're not holding fast, and then there is reason, good reason, to believe that you never were saved in the first place. True believers can never get over. Can you know what I'm saying, brother? You can never get over what Christ did for you. You can never say, I, 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 you know, I could leave that. You would never say that because you love the Lord, and you know what he's done for you, and you know if you don't have Jesus... You are lost, lost, lost. There's only one with the words of eternal life, brother. Yeah. So, listen. The gospel, which we preached, which you received, and in which you stand. By the way, I was thinking of that verse um, in the Psalms. It talks about who will stand in the, in the, in the holy place. Who will, who, will, who, will, who will approach Zion? You know, who will approach the place of worship of God? How, can, how could I stand before God? One way and one way only. In the gospel, that's the only way you can stand in him before God in Christ. Well, we have to stop there. We're going to enjoy picking this up again next time. The resurrection, part one, will come to part two. Uh, when we get there, hardly talked about resurrection here in verses one and two, but we shall when we get to verse number four. So hang in there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and the time we've had to share the word together, for everything we've experienced today. Lord, help us to really understand the word that you've given through the Apostle Paul. Lord, I pray that each and every person here really truly does believe the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners such as ourselves. He came to provide a salvation which infinite in its reach, but only applied to those who believe. Lord, I pray that each one here believes. Each one here has turned away from their sins and trusted in Christ. Each one listening online, the same. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.